Good morning. Hi there. You guys look well rested. I'm so glad. Well, I don't know if any one of us uh, would have really asked for an extra hour of 2020, but I guess we got it, and at least we're asleep for most of us. Um, we have a three-week-old at home, so we were awake for that time, actually. Um, no one really tells you this when you become a parent, but actually kids do not observe daylight savings time. That's not a holiday they're really into. They will wake up when they wish. So I actually had an idea that maybe if we all turned our clocks not one hour back, but maybe one month forward into 2021, maybe that would be a better idea. But oh well, the Lord has given us this year. We will, we will be okay. But um, my name's Thomas. I am one of the pastors here. I'm the pastor of community groups and equipping and uh, it's my pleasure today uh, to resume our series in 1 Corinthians. So if you are here, you have your Bible, I hope, uh, or if you do it electronically on your phone, uh, you could join me in chapter 8 of the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, through this series, we've been uh, asking a few big questions as we go through it. Um, 1 Corinthians is a book, uh, well, it's a letter, I should say, written by the Apostle Paul to the church that is in Corinth. That's why we call it Corinthians. It's the first one that we have. 1 Corinthians. Um, and it's a letter that's written to build up this church. It's written to, to help them to deal with some of the issues that they're, they're uh, dealing with as a church. And so we want to read this book, not just sort of generically and sort of read from it as, as a Bible book in general, but to specifically look at the, the problems that the church in Corinth was dealing with, the way that God spoke into that situation to bring them from a place of unhealth into a place of health, and then apply those principles to our own lives, personally, um, but also, as this is something we should always do, but also ask ourselves, what kind of church does this create? And today we want to ask ourselves, what kind of church does 1 Corinthians 8 produce? What should it produce? Um, we want to say, uh, what would a 1 Corinthians 8 church look like? What, it would, what would it look like if Parkview were known by what this passage teaches? So let me just read it aloud for you. Uh, if you want to follow along, that's great. Um, but it's 13 verses, and here we go. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as, as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we don't eat. We're no better off if we do eat. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, 
this weak person is destroyed. This brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word to us today. And now we're we're entering into a section of Paul's letter to the Corinthians that's focused on issues related to idolatry. Um, Corinth was a city that's dominated by idolatry. And in these next three three chapters, 8 through 10, it's almost like a mini-series within a series because it's so focused on these issues. I'm going to spend a little bit of time here at the beginning just sort of introducing you to what is meant by this idolatry. What would it have been like to be in a city like Corinth? Uh, where it was, where idolatry was sort of endemic, it, it was permeating every realm. Um, like I said, it was dominated by idolatry. Religion, religion was systemic. Religion permeated every aspect of life. If you were a citizen in Corinth, you were affiliated, you knew about it, it, it was the air you breathed. Uh, in, in your work, it was there. If you're a tradesman, uh, and you wanted to get any work in the city, you need to be parted, needed to be part of a trade group, a trade guild, they called them. And um, it was something kind of like a union. And what would, what would happen is they would gather together in the mornings, and almost every time, they would offer worship. To Often it would depend on what guild you were part of, but um, for instance, if you were part of uh, a certain guild, you would offer worship to Poseidon, because that was the, the god that was affiliated with your line of work. And so they would go around the room and well, do you want to be the only one in the room of everyone in your trade who doesn't offer worship, doesn't burn a silly stick of incense to Poseidon, and therefore brings the wrath of Poseidon onto your entire group? Socially, uh, almost every home on your block would, be, would feature these household deities, these little idols that were said to protect the home and offer blessing. Would you want to be the only house on the block that didn't have them? That, 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 you know, if people find out, oh, you're going to forego the blessing of the deities on, not only on your house, but they saw themselves as much more connected than we did. You're going to, our whole block might be affected by that choice. Are you going to do that? When, when your neighbor, who's not a believer, says, hey, won't you come to the wedding feast of, of my firstborn child? They're getting married. Uh, it's going to be a great celebration. You, we've become close, and I really want you to come. Uh, so if you want to come, it's on Saturday noon, just, it'll be at the Temple of Apollos, and uh, that'd be, just join us, and it'd be great. Oof, do you go? Food, that's what we really come to today, and this, the, the next three chapter, chapters are really going to focus on three big questions about how cr- the Corinthians are meant to, you know, sort of be related to uh, food that's offered to idols. Can I eat it in the temple? That's a big one. Can I eat it in my own home? Should I eat it from the meat market? Those are kind of going to be the big questions. But uh, almost every meal in Corinth was imbued with spiritual significance. You would have had a hard time, if you're a citizen in Corinth and you wanted to eat food, you would have a hard time finding any meat that had not been offered to an idol before it was slaughtered and presented for sale. That means that if you are a Corinthian Christian, which is where this letter is written to, Three times a day, you had to deal with your conscience about how you were going to deal with this problem. That is to say, I hope you're starting to see, you cannot opt out of idolatry if you're in Corinth. It's just, you, you have to have an answer. You have to have a decision. Um, 
obviously, it, it, there's an issue that needs to be addressed, and that's why Paul's going to spend these next three chapters here. I hope I've sort of piqued your interest in, oh, wow, yeah, this is, this is a real thing. And it's just, I love the Bible. I love, and, and here's 1 Corinthians. Sometimes I think we kind of go, oh, yeah, interesting, the Bible, you know. Here's, here's what the Bible is. Here's what 1 Corinthians is. These are the, the insider correspondences between the leaders and the, the initial outbreak of the most significant, not just the most significant religious movement, but the most significant social movement that the world has ever seen. And we get to read them and learn. Listen, no one in Corinth knew about Jesus. They were not, they were not sort of trying to figure this out. They had never heard of him. And so when Paul writes, you know, he went and planted this church, guess what? No one knows. The gospel was actually news. We talk about being good news. It was just plain news to them. It was, of course, it was good news, but it was new. And so here, they've got to deal with these questions. It's a live debate. What do we do here? And Paul's going to say, okay, he's going to wade into this conversation and say, okay, let's start to figure this out together, guys. Um, clearly, clearly, it's a conversation that's ongoing. But, but if we were to sort of give a primary question, often as we start preaching, we go, okay, here's what this passage says, and I'll show you where it says it. Instead, let's learn together. We're going to ask one big question to this passage, and that, pas- or that question is, how should we navigate a world full of idolatry? How should we navigate a world full of idolatry? That's what we're going to ask. And, and this passage, I want to say, is going to give us three answers about how to do that. But I hope when, you know, as we begin here, uh, when, when you hear the word idolatry, you might hear that and kind of go, okay, ancient problem, and sort of file this one away under, ah, nice for the people of old, for the people of yore who believed in such things. Yes, uh, today, no such problems. But actually, this might be controversial, but I think that the Corinthian church in many ways kind of had it better off than we do in relationship to idolatry. And here's what I mean. You know, it's one thing to live in a world of literal idols. I walk down the street, there's Hermes hanging out in the corner. There's Apollos, oh, his temple, yes, and his great statue, wonderful, there it is, you know. Um, you see them. They're there, right? Um, today, all of the same spiritual dangers that are, are there and, and were literally there in Corinth are all the same. They're, they're the same for us. We, we're tempted. We're tried. We, we, we're tempted to do things that we know we ought not to. And really the same kind of dynamics in our heart that led the Corinthians in the first century to bow down to idols and do things that we sort of think are silly, all those same spiritual dynamics are present in our hearts today. And yet, it's more insidious. It's, it's more undetectable. It's underground. Listen, in Corinth, if, here's what would happen. You know, you go, you know, I desire control over my circumstances. I really want success in business, right? And I really believe in my heart of hearts that if I have enough money or if I, if I have enough success and achievement, then I'll really be something. My life will be full of meaning and purpose. And so what do I do if I'm in first century in Corinth? Easy. I go down to the statue of Hermes and I, you know, ask the temple priest and I say, hey, what do I need to do? This is what I want. And he says, oh, easy. Go get a goat. Go get a whatever and bring it and do the deal. And great. And guess what? Is there any question as to whether I'm worshiping an idol? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not deceived. I know what I'm doing. But it doesn't look like that today, does it? Same situation. I desire control over my circumstances. I want su- success in business. 
I really believe in my heart of hearts that if I earn enough money or if I, if I get to a high enough position and, that I will really have significance and meaning and my, my life will have purpose. So what do I do? Well, I don't go down to the corner and offer a goat to Hermes. What do I do? I, I go down to work I, and I work 90 hours a week for 40 years until my heart gives up and my marriage falls apart and my kids barely recognize my face. Where's my idol? Can you point to it? No. But has a sacrifice been made? Oh, absolutely. Put your kids, your relationships, your body on the altar of achievement. And guess what? Just like in the first century, it will bleed you dry. Idolatry in the first century in the church in Corinth, it was, it was personal to God because he loves his people and he loves us today. And I, I, like I said, I think in some ways they had a benefit over us. They, they more or less knew when they were being idolatrous, but we don't. We've pushed it underground. So, and that is why we need 1 Corinthians 8. We, we need to see these things. We need to know how do we, we navigate a world full of idolatry I don't need to change that sort of, that sentence, that proposition, that question in order to make it relevant today because, in fact, I think we're in greater danger of it today because rather than going down to Hermes and saying, am I being an idolater? Of course I am. We, it's, it's underground. So let me, let me, I've gotten in deep here, but let me pray and, and we have uh, a few quick things to go through that Paul would tell us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of 1 Corinthians 8. I pray that your love would be poured into our hearts, that we would see by your Holy Spirit, come show us what apart from you we could never see. Lay bare the foundations of our lives and of our hearts and of our true worship. What are we really looking for, Lord? What are we really looking to? Where, where, where are the dangers that we can barely see but that you see so clearly? Would you show them, would you do a great merciful act to us today? Lord, and show us those things. Don't leave us where we are. And Lord, most of all, will you show us Jesus? Lord, we don't need a statue. We don't need an image of God because you've already given us your perfect image, your perfect son, the moving, living, walking, breathing embodiment of who you are. Fill us with his grace. Fill us with his, the confidence that you will give us all that we need, that our idols lie to us, they steal from us, they bleed us dry, but you, in Jesus, have bled yourself dry for us. Preach that word to us today, we pray. Amen. Okay, I promised you three, three guidelines to follow as we try to navigate faithfully a world full of idolatry. And the first one that we see is that we should navigate it by worshiping God alone. We see this in verses 4 through 6, uh, especially 5 through 6 in particular, but I'll read them again. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, through whom we exist, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Uh, you might remember from last week that we're entering into a section where Paul is responding uh, to a letter that the Corinthians have sent to him. So we see a lot of quotation marks. Maybe you see me do one of these. Um, and what he's doing is we're sort of listening to one end of a phone call, I don't know if you've ever, you know, someone's in a room with you and you sort of hear one end of the conversation, you kind of go, I think I know what's happening. I 
heard some phrases. I heard what they're saying. Um, that's what's happening here. So clearly what's happened is um, Paul is responding to the Corinthians' assertion that their knowledge, he said, we all have knowledge, actually gave them the liberty uh, to deal with idols in a way that was, uh, well, give them freedom that uh, Paul maybe isn't super in favor of, as we'll see. So he says, all of us possess knowledge, they said in verse 1. All of us know this, right? Um, basically, they became Christians. We've become Christians, Paul, right? And so we know. We used, to, we used to worship the idols. We used to go down to Hermes when we wanted control over our lives and so forth. But now we know that her, that statue, we know, Paul, it's just a piece of stone. We have knowledge, right? We know it's just a piece of wood. There's, we used to think that there was a real Hermes who was sort of within and around and sort of watching over the statue. And he would see, oh, Thomas is doing his, th- he's, he's, worshiping me, so I'm going to bless his life. Or he isn't, so I'm going to curse him. Well, now we know. Look, Paul, we know. There's no monsters in the closet. Ghosts aren't real. And so the idols aren't real. So, whew, that means we can kind of deal with the idols however we want because there's nothing there. Right? You know, no monsters in the closet. That was a very sort of enlightened view, right? And Paul responds with, well, yes, but hold on. It, it's not that simple. He says there are many so-called gods and lords in heaven and on earth, meaning idols, right? Representations of supposed deities. And he says, as indeed there are many lowercase g and parenthesis and uh, whatever the quote, quotation mark, gods and many so-called lords. What's Paul saying? He says there are indeed lo- gods and lords, lowercase. He's, he's saying, well, actually, you're right. You're right. When you, you look at the idol of Hermes, no, there is no real sort of Hermes literally sort of within and around that who stands to bless or curse you. Well, no, that's right. But when people go to Hermes and they say, I need, I need control, power, success, achievement, whatever, something, a real spiritual transaction is happening there. They're offering real human worship that belongs to the one true God and is being stolen away from them. And, and God is being denied what he deserves, and those people are being bled dry by idols in a real act of worship. There are many gods. There, there is, that is, there is a spiritual reality behind their idolatry. So you can't just throw it away like the Corinthians seem to be doing. They're really offering worship. It's really being received. And they're looking for something through these idols that God wants to offer them. So Paul reminds them of the first commandment. It's really, it's really that simple. You shall have no gods before me. The first principle for how to navigate a world full of idolatry is that God, the creator of all things and all people, requires exclusive worship for himself alone. And therefore, anything that should interfere with that, and we'll find out that eating food in the temple and some of these other things, you would say, yeah, that's, that's something you can't do if you're offering exclusive worship to God. That, then those things have to go. He will will not, and indeed cannot, share the throne. He will not share worship. He says you cannot worship God and money. He says you cannot worship uh, someone's opinion of you and me. You can, it's just not possible. In fact, it, you know, this makes a lot of sense. Martin Luther uh, said that every time we sin, we're, we, we'd never sin without breaking the first commandment. And that's because when we sin, we're not just sort of behaving badly in general and sort of doing naughty things. But when we sin, uh, we're worshiping. We're always worshiping. We're placing something or someone on the throne, something higher in our hearts than God. 
Uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, who was an author, famous author, not a, not a believer, he was a skeptic, uh, but he said this um, in an address to Kenyon College uh, before he passed away. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if, if they are where you tap a real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. What's he saying? He's saying we have no choice but to worship. And the only choice is what, what will we worship? That's the choice we have to make. Have, have you felt what this passage is pointing out in us? Have you, I, have you felt the sort of, the constant longing? I, I feel like every moment I'm sort of thinking of what's, what's my next vacation? What's, what's my next break? What's my next joy that I can find and sort of attach my heart to to get through this next moment of pain, to get through this next moment of discomfort? What is that? It's a plain spiritual fact that God has baked into our existence, that we are worshipers. I remember when uh, my wife was studying abroad in Spain, this was some years ago, and uh, we weren't married yet, and she, she was off for, for six weeks in Spain, and I was stuck, and I was actually taking a really difficult class. I was still in, in university, and I was taking cadaver anatomy, so it was, I think it was something like a six or eight semester hour class in like six, eight weeks or something like that, so it was hu- super intensive, and you know, cadaver anatomy, you're dissecting. Okay, you got it. Uh, it was stressful, and I just remember... Um, the first week or so that I would, I would encounter these really stressful moments, you know, I had a test coming up, or I had, you know, there was this really big day of, of work, five or six hours in the lab, and I would just be like, oh, I can't deal with this. And I would pick up my phone, and this, was, this is going to age me, but back in the day, I would pick up my phone, and I had speed dial, you know, and I'd push number two, and number two was Katie, number one's voicemail, maybe you remember. Push number two, that's Katie, and I would phone, I'd call her, and it'd go straight to voicemail. Because she's in Spain. She wasn't available to me, right? And, and I just remember, it was probably three or four times that I did that before I realized, what am I doing? I'm, I'm not going to get a hold of her. She's, she's out of the country, right? She's not available to me right now. But I, the, the Lord sort of said, what, what's going on there, right? In my moments of stress and pain, when sort of the foundations were laid bare, and I was like, ah, none of the normal things that sort of kept me happy and, and going were there for me, and I was encountering stress, where did I go? I needed her voice. I needed to hear from her. I needed some comfort in that moment. And, and then it was gone. And I was, you know what? I should probably be going to God in prayer in those moments anyway. That was a great lesson for me to learn at the beginning of our relationship. It's been valuable now. But, but what was happening in that moment? Could you if, you, were, if you were a person who was sort of discipling me, spiritually influencing me, could you point to that and say, now that breaks this specific rule in the Bible. You've broken the do not call your girlfriend and look to her for, <laughs> for comfort rule. No, you couldn't, but what was happening? It was idolatry. It was, it was worship. So, so Paul's reminded them of that first commandment. And I, I wonder for you, where does your mind naturally go 
when you don't have to think about anything at all. What's your, what's your most frequent daydream? When things go wrong, I'll ask you just like I should have asked myself initially back then, how do you comfort yourself when things go wrong? What, what's, what's the phrase that maybe you, you don't voice but is in your heart of, at least I still have... Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about, if you really want to see what you're worshiping, you know, think about this. If you want to know if there are rats in your basement, how do you find out? Do you sort of open the door and turn on the light? No rats. Great. Good. No, what do you do? You sort of, as quietly as possible, open the door. And then you jump to the bottom of the stairs, flip out the light, and then they, they all scurry around. You go, okay, I've got rats in my basement. Pain has a way of jumping us to the bottom of our hearts so that we can see what's going on. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he yells at us in our pains. Where does your pain take you? And maybe, maybe it'd be best actually don't ask yourself. Ask yourself. Meditate on scripture. Ask God to show you these things. But ask your friends. I hope every one of us has someone who will be honest with us about this and say, you know, no, I couldn't point out a specific sin, but I see that, man, this... This seems to alter your mood more than almost anything else in your life. This seems to have sort of emotional, spiritual control over you in a way that it's, it probably shouldn't. Now, in, in Corinth, idolatry was something that they had to deal with sort of on a societal level. They had to sort of identify, look, you know, here's Apollos and, and our neighbors are going after these things. And it's something that we should do too. Not just, I've taken you through sort of on an individual level here, uh, but also on a societal level. They had to look out and say, uh, and we should do this too, look at our society and say, where are the things that are dragging people away from the Lord? What has captured people's hearts and minds, imagination, worship? What do people get most passionate and fired up about? What seems to control the nation's mood, to control people's attitudes toward one another, uh, their neighbors? What's, what's causing people to spend time and money and, and energy to avoid losing it or to get it? Are there things that are causing people to, to war against one another? Those are usually the conflicts of idols, even splitting families and causing division. Well, you guys might not know this, but on Tuesday, many of us are going to get the opportunity to vote. And I think if, if I'd be doing pastoral malpractice if I didn't talk about idolatry on a Sunday before an election day and say, hey, here's some things we need to talk about. Um, what a privilege to vote and get to, get to engage in the democratic process. And we have to say as Christians, reflecting on this passage, what a danger. Part few, millions of Americans are going to wake up on Wednesday or Thursday, whenever things are called, and they are either going to feel like the sky is falling or like their greatest dream has come true. They're either going to feel like things are ah, going to be okay or like I might as well move to Canada. That is to say, their, their hope is hanging in the balance. Their emotional and spiritual reality is going to be decided by the name that pops up on their morning paper or on their, on their phone in the morning. And if we take this first guideline from Paul seriously, that we, we worship God alone, and that we actually, the, the author of Hebrews would say, we belong to an unshakable kingdom, a king that, kingdom that can't be shaken, then we, that can't be one of us. It can't be one of us. We can, we, we can, and I think we should give our vote, but we can never give our worship. That is the Christian principle. 
And maybe I'd ask you to think back on the last month or two, right? Uh, have you gotten so invested that you, you have lost friends, right? Have you gotten so into it that, you know, it's sort of the height of emotional, uh, your highs and lows are almost always decided by kind of a conversation you had about this topic or, or some news item that you saw. Our idols, our emotions are often indicative of our idols in our hearts, right? When they're threatened, we get anxious and we have to lash out. And, and when they're not, you know, we, we feel safe. Um, and a, like I said, I think a Christian should participate in this process. I think we should. We should have dialogue. There should be ideas that we fight for and, and that we're, we're happy to have robust debate and really have strong opinions. Uh, I think that's right. And I, honestly, I look at sometimes at people my age and I go, we should probably not give up so quickly on, on these things. But we always do those things as exiles, as people who have another king who's not up for election this year, by the way. His is sealed. It's done, right? He's not moving off of his throne. And so we can vote with that quiet confidence of knowing that our king is on the throne. Our kingdom is unshakable, right? And so if your kingdom feels shaken this week, this might be something that you need to think about. Um, so how can we navigate a world full of idolatry? Well, the first thing is by worshiping God alone. And we're going to have to zip through the second one. Um, I think it's worth spending a little bit of time fleshing out the idea of idolatry, though, because this will really come up in the next couple of chapters, next three sermons. So the second one is by loving our fellow believers. And we see that in verses 1 and 2, especially. Um, so we all have knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love, Paul says, builds up. And in 7 through 13, that's a big emphasis not all possess this knowledge. And it's clear he's talking about fellow Christians. He says this brother for whom Christ dies, right? Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And he goes on to say, but take care that this right of yours doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. If they see you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't they be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat the food as offered to an idol? And Paul's saying, be dragged back into the heart-draining, worship-stealing way of pagan worship. And so by your knowledge, this weak per person is destroyed. The brother, he invokes the family name, the family metaphor of the New Testament. Your brother, for whom Christ died, has been destroyed. Is that what you should do with your freedom? Is that what you should do with your knowledge? That's what Paul is bringing up here. He wants to take them to task for their flippant attitude toward their fellow believers, thinking, well, I have this freedom, I can use it how I wish, and, and my spiritual attitudes and activities don't really have an impact on those around me. And Paul says, no, no, no. That attitude, and I hope you hear, I think this is very common for us today. Um, we feel like religion is sort of a private and personal choice. It's something that I get to decide, and therefore, you know, it doesn't really have almost anything to do with anyone else. That is an idea that Paul here wants to say is totally foreign to the God of the Bible. They were in danger of putting a stumbling block in front of the most vulnerable among them. And Paul says, that is not the way of Jesus. In fact, that's a huge theme in the book of Corinthians, book of 1 Corinthians, is that the real way to power, and listen up, Parkview, if you, we want to be a church that's known and characterized by real and vital spiritual power, the way to real power is through weakness. That we don't leverage our own benefits, even if it costs the, the most vulnerable among us, we actually instead lower ourselves to be among the weakest. Did you know we can really look at the way of Jesus and, and find out 
if, if we take the way of the cross, we will be and become a church of real spiritual gravity, meaning, and significance. Did you know? It's no wonder that the greatest, I said this at the beginning, but the greatest social, religious, whatever movement of any kind in world history that we're a part of, you and me right here, began with a man dying on the cross for the weak. Did you know when, when Jesus died on the cross, he, had, he, was, he was pulling at zero? Zero followers, poor, naked, in the grave. If, if we were looking at that with the world's eyes of what it means uh, to be successful and as, a, as a people, who would hitch their cart to that wagon? I don't think any of us. But you should, we can really look at this and find out what the way of real spiritual value is. Would anyone doubt now, today, 2,000 years later, that the way of Jesus, it, it did something. It, it meant something. It means something. We can, we can really look at Jesus and find that. And, and by the way, if we want to uh, be the kind of people that Paul's exhorting us to be here in 1 Corinthians 8, we won't do so by just sort of trying our hardest, feeling as bad as we can, and, and just sort of doing it. How will we do it? How will we actually find in ourselves the resources to, to look to the weak among us and place them higher than ourselves? to really love the heart of Jesus into our friends and neighbors, but first who are believers and who don't know Christ? Well, the answer is right in this passage. He says, for us there is one Lord Jesus Christ, for whom this weak uh, brother, Christ has died for this weak brother. We have been brought into relationship with the one Jesus. And as I prayed in the beginning, in fact, God is so concerned about worship. He's so concerned that we would worship him and not the idols around us because God already has an image. We don't need the image of Hermes or the image of Apollos or whatever it might be. If now in our lives where our idols are invisible or unseen, we don't need to pour our lives out. God looks at us pouring ourselves out for the idols in our city and in our nation and his heart is grieved. Of course, it's grieved because we're giving worship to something besides him, but it's grieved because he sees his people being deceived. He sees, us, he sees us bleeding ourselves dry when, when he wants to and has bled himself dry for us. The very things that we're looking for in sin and in idolatry, Christ has already given and offered to us for free. And if we want to be filled with the kind of love that will enable us to love our fellow brothers and sisters and the world around us with the kind of love that Paul is describing here, we need to look no further than Christ crucified. How will we find the power to become this kind of community? How will we find the power to become these kind of people? When we come to Jesus. When we embrace him, this incredible man whose sorrows only seem to embolden him to embrace us more deeply. Who looked at us at our deepest level, saw what was wrong with us, and didn't take a step back, but took a step forward. Then we will be able to do that with those around us. So embrace him. Perhaps today you're, feeling, you're here and you're feeling drained. You, you've spent a week doing who knows what and you, you are here and you're sensing, you know what, the Lord is putting his finger on something deep within me and I do feel empty. I do feel, I do feel drained dry by these pursuits. The Lord says, come to me. I have bled myself dry for you. You will not worship me and come back empty. 
come to him. And my encouragement, if I were to give you a really practical word this week, would be, while the world says, you know, pick a way to worship and it's really your own sort of personal thing, here's what I would encourage you to do. If you want to begin to form your heart in the way that this passage is asking us to and begin to see us become a church that this passage is trying to make us be, a 1 Corinthians 8 church, it would be this. Often, when we think of, you know, our normal weekly, daily spiritual disciplines, reading the Bible, prayer, meditation, maybe if you're memorizing the Bible or something like that, um, we often sort of sell them to you as, hey, this is going to be great for you. Read your Bible and you'll have peace. You, personal peace, right, for you. And pray and then you personally will see these great things. Well, I want to encourage you, I think the, the way that this Bible would form us is this week when, when you're sort of doing those things, what, and maybe you're here and you're like, man, I've, I'm not really reading my Bible. Whatever that next step would be, to instead of, uh, as you begin, saying, okay, let's read the Bible and enjoy this and this will be great for me. I want you to look around the room. It could be now or it could be in a few minutes or as you're walking out. And I want you to pick out a face. Someone, maybe not even in your family. Maybe if you're here and you don't know anyone here. Maybe it's just someone, you just try to memorize their face. You don't even know them. Maybe you try to meet them outside in the lobby um, or out in the outside area. I forget where we're supposed to congregate now. Uh, but, and do it for them. Because your spiritual vitality has an impact on the people in this room. What, what you do during the week has the potential for great, of course, for harm, but for great blessing. You can say, I need to read my Bible this week for Rachel. I want her to benefit from the spiritual vitality that I experience, from my connection to the Lord, that we together can be a people that love one another, and we do it not just on Sundays with the saying hi and some of the other things we do, but that our, our connection to one another is just as much as the liver is connected to the spleen and they need one another. That's one of Paul's favorite metaphors is the body. So also we need one another. I want to bless my fellow believers. So take that. That's a good practical step for this week. And let's remember the love of Jesus who has led us here and will lead us forward as well to become this kind of people in his image. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for 1 Corinthians 8. Thank you that you have not left us without a word to hear from you, to be led by you, to be formed in the way of your Son. And we thank you most of all that as we read this, we don't need to despair and say, oh, woe is me. I am not what I ought to be, and maybe I never will be. No. Father, we believe that your Spirit brings power, can change us, can make us the people that you want us to be, not because you'll just sort of lend us some energy so we can try harder, but because you will infuse us with the perfect love of Jesus so that we can give it to others and be compelled by it, by your beauty, Lord. And make us a 1 Corinthians 8 church, Lord, that refuses to worship anything else that's drawn to you to worship you alone and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Do all this for your glory, we pray here at Parkview and in our city. Amen.